Please always consult with your physicians prior to making any changes to your treatment plan. Music from this episode is courtesy of Ryan Hamner. Welcome to Living with Scanxiety, the cancer podcast, a podcast geared to help you navigate the pediatric cancer world. As a mother of a child who battled a soft tissue sarcoma for over a year, your host, Rosaria Kozar, understands and will help guide you through your journey. She brings the knowledge of experts, families, survivors, and other organizations tied to the pediatric cancer world to your doorstep. Her mission is to inform, support, and promote hope for you and your family. This is where hope lives. This is where hope thrives. Together as one. The age around which it's, you know, it's uh, important to get assent from, you know, from kids is at around 12 years old or so, right? So, so they're, they're not consenting to their treatment, but they do, they are asked, right? And they do, they are asked to, you know, to assent and to, you know, to participate. Today I have with me Jorge Fernandez. He is originally from Tenerife, Spain, but has made a home for himself in the medical community in Boston, Massachusetts. He is a well-accomplished social worker for the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and Boston Children's Hospital located in Boston, Massachusetts in the United States. Jorge began working in the pediatric oncology world over 20 years ago and previously worked with children and families in a community mental health setting. In addition to working with patients and families in Boston at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and Boston Children's Hospital, he has worked with the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute Global Health Initiative and participated in partnerships to improve pediatric psychosocial care for children in low and middle-income countries. That said, it is essential for all parents or caregivers going through this journey with their child to understand what resources a social worker can provide within a hospital setting. So that is why Jorge has joined us today to take the guesswork out of his role. While not every hospital is the same, there are very similar aspects within each institution. So welcome, Jorge, to Living with Scanxiety. Thank you so much. It's, it's great to be here. Well, it certainly is a privilege. Can you tell me what your day looks like, what you do every day? Yeah, I get that question a lot um, in various ways. And I guess the, the short answer is it's hard to to have a typical day. So, you know, like like everyone else, you know, we, we have our planners and we're, you know, we're trying to schedule things. But um, very often those sort of plans have to go kind of go out the window because we work um, very much um, along the lines of what, you know, what kids and families need um, on any given day. So. I'll, you know, typically plan my day to say, okay, how many kids that I'm working with, in my, you know, my caseload are currently inpatient to hospital. How many of them are coming to clinic today? What's, you know, what's going on with them? So, you know, for for instance, um, 
Are they due for scans, right? That's a big one. Um, is this a family who has recently started and is still, you know, getting oriented to, you know, to things? Is there, you know, a part of treatment coming along? Maybe it's a surgery or maybe it's radiation that's different and new, uh, even if they've been on treatment for a while. Um, is this a child who has a hard time with medical procedures? And today she has to have, uh, you know, her portacath accessed um, or, you know, some other you know, a needle stick of some sort. Um, so, but, um, but then there are always ways in which we, you know, get paged. Um, we're, you know, we're kind of called to, you know, to address things that are somewhat unexpected. So there's a, you know, there's a, a general way in which the day goes, but, um, but it's, it's often um, responding to things in the, in the moment as well. So, those are, and you know, and then we have some some administrative meetings and that sort of thing, which try to keep to a minimum. But there's always some, you know, some of that. Uh, we have trainees, we have um, social work fellows here, um, so I supervise and I teach um, them. Um, so that's that's some of what a day might look like. So it really depends on the family too, depending on what your most critical part is, how much they need you. Yes, it absolutely depends on the family, um, both in terms of, of need and, you know, an interest, right? Because um, I think for, you know, for some people, not not frequently, but but it's, you know, to me, it's always kind of a, a surprise why the question doesn't come up more often. But, you know, uh, people aren't coming here for, you know, for psychological services. They're not coming here to see a, you know, a mental health professional, whether it be a, you know, a clinical social worker or a psychologist or, or a psychiatrist, which are some of the other disciplines in our group. Um, and yet we know that there are many emotional sort of needs that arise from this. Um, so when we, you know, when we meet families, it's very, you know, important uh, for us. You know, we, as you know, we work in a primary, you know, team model with, you know, with the oncologists, with the nurses, um, that, that the family understands that, you know, we're 100% referral, right? So all of our you know, all of our patients are assigned a psychosocial provider. It's not like, you know, in adult medical oncology where there are so many thousands of patients and they just don't have the bandwidth to see everyone. They see kind of whoever is referred or whoever self-refers. But, you know, most patients don't really, my understanding on the adult side is most patients don't really need a social worker or, or need one, or maybe they need one, but they don't need one. Um, but with pediatrics, it's different. So, um, but we want there, obviously, we don't want anyone to feel stigmatized or to feel like the social worker is meeting me because, you know, they feel I have some kind of a, you know, there's something problematic about me. That's obviously the last thing we think. Um, so we have to have to kind of introduce services in that in that context, right, that it's preventative, it's supportive. And it's, you know, it's based on what the parents and, you know, family need and want. Right. So some, you know, some folks. Um, have lots of other supports and, you know, they, they need relatively little from us. And, um, we, you know, we don't treat everyone exactly the same because we want, you know, really want parents and, and children to, you know, to get what they find helpful. Now, if we identify problems, then we're going to, you know, want to talk about them and sort of make suggestions, but obviously it's, it's always, um, following the lead of, of parents and, and kids. 
Yeah, uh, I'm kind of intrigued in, in you just mentioned following the lead of the kids because when we think about pediatric cancer, a lot of people think to the commercials where they show kids that are under the age of 10. So at what point and what age can a child essentially kick out their parents and caregivers from, let's say, a meeting with you? Is Does that happen or can it happen? Yes, it, it does. It's a really good question. Um, in a in sort of a an area that, you know, that lots of people, you know, are thinking about and or have been thinking about and working on and, and, and in some ways struggling with. Um, so there's, there's the work that I do, but also just, you know, the, the medical care itself. Um, now I'm not a, you know, I'm not a, an ethicist and I'm not an expert on this, but the, you know, the age around which it's, you know, it's um, important to get assent from, you know, from kids is at around 12 years old or so, right? So, so they're, they're not consenting to their treatment, but they do, they are asked, right? And they do, they are asked to, you know, to assent and to, you know, to participate. Now, there are, you know, obviously differences um, from family to family, from, you know, there may be some, you know, in some cases, some, you know, some cultural realities, um, that, you know, that, that are important to consider. Um, but, but just kind of short answer, I would say roughly around that, you know, that age is where, even if, you know, if it doesn't come from the child, we will introduce those kinds of, of ideas and want to talk with the family and the, you know, and the child about that, um, and, and why we feel it's important. So it's again um, not um, not meant to in any way um, usurp the authority of the parents, but rather to say it might be it might be helpful if we expand this um, not to exclude anyone, but to include other facets or other ways of of talking about and you know and thinking about this. Um, in addition to, you know, the meeting with the parents or the meeting together, also um, giving a space for the child to meet with me, certainly, um, but also with their doctors by, you know, the child by herself or by himself. Can you tell us what services you can offer to patients and caregivers? Well, so so first I, I should say that what I'll talk about will be sort of the model and the, um, the program that we have here at, at Dana-Farber and Boston Children's. But it does, so pediatric, you know, psychosocial providers or social workers in particular um, in the United States, I'll so just limit myself to the United States, um, tend to, you know, essentially do the same thing, but from hospital to hospital, from program to program, it can look fairly different, um, and I'll say that one of the one of the relatively rare characteristics of our program is that, as a social worker, I do not, although I think it's highly important and you know really primary, I do not work with families around resource issues. In other words, transportation, housing, all of those very vital things that without them, you know, children and, and parents couldn't you know, really do this, 
uh, we have a very dedicated and, um, and talented group of, of folks called, that we call resource specialists, um, and they handle that side of the work very closely together. They handle that side of the work, freeing you know, myself and the other clinicians up for doing you know, more of the emotional, behavioral adjustment, you know, supportive um, tasks that, that we are trained to do in that that our population um, can benefit from. Mm-hmm. Well, unfortunately, for the sake of time, we have to wrap up. I just want to say thank you for giving us all um, this information. And it's definitely really important to know. And we appreciate all the hard work you do and taking the time to join us. Actually, before you go, I also want to touch upon if someone wanted to get in touch with you following the show, can they? Or do you recommend something else? Yeah, I, I think the, the best way, the best and easiest way is just to to reach me by email. Okay, fantastic. I'll put that in the show notes for the listeners. Okay, well, thank you so much, and I hope you have a great day. You too. Thank, thank you very much. It's been such a, such a privilege. I really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to Living with Scanxiety. Please subscribe to Rosaria's podcast to hear more informative discussions like today's and visit www.livingwithscanxiety.org for show notes, links, and more. Music is courtesy of Ryan Hamner. <laughs>